0: Episode 90, How to Spot Bullshit Arguments, Part 2 In Part 1 of this miniseries, I covered the first 10 of the 20 logical fallacies that the legendary American astronomer, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author and science communicator Carl Sagan considered to be the most common and perilous. Remember, logical fallacies are errors or gaps in the reasoning process that invalidate an argument. A person using logical fallacies to make their case may be doing so quite innocently, simply because they've never had any training in logic, but they may also be trying to bullshit you. Consequently, learning to identify logical fallacies is a critical life skill that will help you navigate the sea of information that the 21st century world presents us all with, so that you can swim through it rather than drowning in it. Number 11 of Carl Sagan's top 20 logical fallacies, the non sequitur. Latin for it does not follow, a non sequitur is a conclusion that does not follow from the statements that lead to it. The non sequitur is often a signal that the person using it has simply failed to recognize alternative possibilities. The argument that the entire population must be vaccinated against COVID-19 because a small percentage of people become seriously ill when infected and a tiny percentage of them die is a non sequitur. There are numerous alternative approaches to this problem, including focusing prevention efforts on those most at risk of serious illness and death, and developing more effective treatments that prevent serious illness and death, or simply employing those that have already been found to be effective. Number 12. Post-Hoc, Ergo-Propter-Hoc, Latin for it happened after, so it was caused by. Those using those fallacy assume that if event B occurs after event A, then B was caused by A. Attributing a decline in so-called case numbers, hospitalisation rates or death counts from COVID-19 to any government intervention is a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Any person with the slightest familiarity with epidemiology knows that infectious respiratory diseases follow a highly predictable pattern, with the rate of transmission rising slowly at first, then reaching a turning point, after which the transmission rate increases rapidly, builds to a peak and then declines as the number of susceptible hosts diminishes and I've included a graph illustrating this phenomenon in the post this podcast episode. This curve, first identified by William Farr in 1840 and dubbed Farr's Law in his honour, can easily be observed in all communities that have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 or any other respiratory virus, and the shape of the curve is resolutely unaffected by the timing of any government interventions, including mask mandates, stay-at-home orders, business and school closures, and curfews. And I've included a couple of representative graphs depicting case rates in various adjacent counties and adjacent states that implemented their policies at a whole raft of different times and yet showed remarkably similar, almost identical curves in the post this podcast episode. Number 13, meaningless question. Questions such as, how would you feel if your own grandmother got COVID and died because some selfish person didn't wear a mask, fall into this category? Unless said person actually had symptoms of respiratory illness and had direct and prolonged contact with my grandmother, if I still had a living grandmother, which I don't, there is no possibility of them killing granny simply by declining to wear a mask. Why? Because as Dr. Anthony Fauci himself said, But the one thing historically people need to realize, that even if there is some asymptomatic transmission, in all the history of respiratory-borne viruses of any type, asymptomatic transmission has never been the driver of outbreaks. The driver of outbreaks is always a symptomatic person. Even if there's a rare asymptomatic person that might transmit, an epidemic is not driven by asymptomatic carriers. Number 14, excluded middle or false dichotomy. This logical fallacy involves presenting only the two extremes in a continuum of intermediate possibilities without acknowledging that there are many options between these extremes. When the highly credentialed and previously well-respected authors of the Great Barrington Declaration suggested that the correct response to COVID-19 was to revert to the guidance outlined in countries' previous pandemic preparedness plans, all of which specifically excluded mass quarantining of healthy people, even if exposed to the infectious agent, business closures and mask mandates, they were immediately dogpiled by critics who committed the false dichotomy fallacy by equating any movement away from lockdown-oriented policies to a let-it-rip policy. Here's an excerpt from the Great Barrington Declarations FAQ section: "Quote: Isn't focus protection too risky an experiment?" Answer: No. Focus protection is based on the risk-based strategies outlined in the many pandemic preparedness plans that different countries had developed during the past decades. Surprisingly, except for Sweden, all countries threw their pandemic plans out the window when this pandemic started. Question, how are prior pandemics dealt with? Answer, the focus protection strategy proposed by the Great Barrington Declaration is indeed the standard way that societies have dealt with prior epidemics. Letting people who face very little risk from viral infection but would suffer from the lockdowns live their lives normally while taking precautions when they interact with more vulnerable people makes intuitive sense. They are harmed by the lockdowns and lifting the restrictions helps them. At the same time, better focus protection for the vulnerable is a moral necessity. Over time, population immunity will build up among the non-vulnerable until the vulnerable will no longer be at high risk of COVID-19 when engaging in normal activities, end quote. The focus protection strategy advocated in the Great Barrington Declaration by no means sanctions letting it rip Instead, it counsels that those most vulnerable to serious illness and death from infection with SARS-CoV-2 be maximally shielded, while those at low risk stay free to live their lives so that they may be exposed to the virus and become immune, contributing to the herd immunity, which will eventually protect the vulnerable. Another excerpt from the FAQ section of the Great Barrington Declaration. Quote, does the Great Barrington Declaration advocate for letting the virus run free? No, that is a false characterization, as it advocates the opposite, The central tenet of the declaration is focused protection, where older people and other high-risk groups are better protected than they have been to ensure that they are not exposed to the virus. Neither does it encourage intentionally exposing anyone to the virus. Letting children and young adults live their lives without lockdown restrictions does not mean that we are letting them die from the virus, just like we do not accuse politicians for letting people die in car accidents when a new road is built, on the contrary, the Great Barrington Declaration reduces the considerable collateral damage for less vulnerable people who face more danger from lockdown than they do from COVID-19 infection. End quote. Number fifteen: short-term versus long-term. This logical fallacy is a subset of the excluded middle, but Sagan considered it so important that he pulled it out for special attention. It underlies many terrible decisions made by individuals, corporations, and governments alike. Implementation of economically and socially destructive policies in a quixotic attempt to restrict, control or prevent the spread of a highly contagious respiratory virus with a low fatality rate is the perfect example of this fallacy. Even if it could be proved that any of the containment policies achieved a reduction in illnesses and death from COVID-19, which multiple studies have forcefully disproven, these marginal benefits would be far outweighed by the long-term harmful consequences of shutting down schools, businesses and places of worship, disrupting supply chains and preventing the social contact that is so critical to human health and well-being. Government policies, not SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, drove hundreds of millions of people, many of them children, into extreme poverty, unemployment and food insecurity, increased risky substance use, overdose deaths and family violence, severely compromised educational attainments, especially among underprivileged students. The entire debacle described by UNICEF as a, quote, nearly insurmountable scale of loss to children's schooling, end quote. Caused a sharp rise in physical inactivity, unhealthy eating patterns, and weight gain, including in children and adolescents, drove deterioration in mental health, especially among women, children, and adolescents, and sparked social disintegration and loss of cohesion. Long-term damage is inflicted by public health policies which undermine the basic principles of liberal democracies. The rights to free speech, freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom to use one's property and operate one's own business without interference by the state as long as one is not harming others. These dangers were clearly recognised by former World Health Organisation Director-General Dr Margaret Chan, who, during the 2009 swine flu outbreak, strongly advocated against shutdowns, quarantines and travel restrictions in even the hardest-hit countries. Quote, Let me make a strong plea to countries to refrain from introducing measures that are economically and socially disruptive, yet have no scientific justification and bring no clear public health benefit. Rational responses are always best. They are all the more important at a time of economic downturn, end quote. And that was a quote from the WHO Director General's speech, H1N1 Influenza Situation. Number 16, Slippery Slope. This logical fallacy is also related to the excluded middle. The argument that people who express concerns about the safety of vaccines are at risk of becoming violent extremists. I kid you not, this allegation was made by California Senator Richard Pan, who received over $95,000 from pharmaceutical lobbyists in 2013-14, and in return rammed numerous pieces of pharma-friendly legislation through the California legislature, is an excellent example of the Slippery Slope fallacy. Purveyors of this logical fallacy would have you believe that the mere act of questioning medical authorities and accepted wisdom puts people on a trajectory that leads them toward taking up arms and participating in violent activities. Number 17. Confusion of correlation and causation. Similarly to post hoc ergo propter hoc, this logical fallacy assumes that if two events co-occur, they are causally related. Many jurisdictions throughout the world counted, and continue to count, all deaths that occur in people who tested positive to SARS-CoV-2 using a PCR test that is incapable of detecting infection as COVID-19 deaths, regardless of whether the deceased person showed any symptoms of respiratory illness, was already dying of some other disease, or was at the end of their expected lifespan. Counting deaths with SARS-CoV-2 infection as deaths from SARS-CoV-2 infection is a stunning example of confusing correlation with causation. At the moment of death, an individual could have any number of bacteria, viruses, parasites and other potential pathogens in their body. But unless a clear chain of causation can be identified that links the presence of the bug to the person's death, it is inaccurate to ascribe their death to the bug. Number 18, straw man. This logical fallacy consists of caricaturing a position to make it easier to attack. Those using the straw man fallacy willfully avoid addressing important points made by their opponents. Hence it is one of the favourite techniques of the inveterate bullshit artist. A standout example of the straw man fallacy is the accusation that people who are concerned about taking an inadequately tested, rush-to-market COVID-19 injection that was never tested for its ability to prevent either infection with or transmission of SARS-CoV-2 only object to it because they believe Bill Gates wants to use it to microchip them. Number 19. Suppressed evidence or half-truths. Deliberate concealment of important information greatly impairs our ability to make important decisions. When current WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus announced that the death rate from COVID-19 was 3.4%, sparking widespread panic in both the media and governments, he neglected to mention several important facts. Firstly, it is impossible to accurately ascertain the case fatality rate at the beginning of an outbreak of a novel pathogen, largely because of selection bias. Only the most severe hospitalised cases have yet been identified. As the outbreak progresses, better methods of identifying true cases develop, resulting in progressively more accurate estimates of the case fatality rate. The case fatality rate, or CFR, for COVID-19 varies from 0.1% in Singapore, Brunei, South Korea and various South Pacific Island nations to 18.1% in war-torn Yemen. This huge variance obviously can't be attributed to differences in the virulence of the virus. Instead, it reflects enormous variation in underlying socioeconomic conditions, which affect the capacity of different regions to identify cases, especially through testing, and offer timely and effective treatment, as well as host specific factors such as age, comorbidities and nutritional status. Secondly, the infection fatality rate, or IFR, the number of deaths occurring in all people exposed to the virus, including those not diagnosed as cases, is considerably lower than the case fatality rate. Median global IFR prior to so-called vaccination or previous infection is now estimated to be 0.0003% between the ages of 0 and 19 years, 0.002% between 20 and 29 0.011% between 30 and 39, 0.035% between 40 and 49 years of age, 0.123% between 50 and 59, and 0.506% between the ages of 60 and 69 years. Only in those aged over 70 does the IFR break the 1% line, with a median IFR of 2.9% in community-dwelling elderly, and 4.5% in the overall elderly population, including institutionalized individuals. Number 20, weasel words. Weasel words are phrases that are designed to sound authoritative or meaningful, but lack content and true meaning. The invocation of racial justice as a rationale to prioritise racial minorities for receipt of experimental COVID-19 injections that have not demonstrated either long-term efficacy or safety is a fine example of the use of weasel words. As Carl Sagan mused, quote, Euphemisms for war are one of a broad class of reinventions of language for political purposes, end quote. And that quote was from The Demon Haunted World, page 204. Make no mistake, we are currently at war. However, unlike previous wars that we are all familiar with, this war is being waged on citizens by their own governments and the corporate interests that control them. As in all wars, propaganda is a crucial weapon and we are being machine-gunned with it every single day. To defend ourselves against propaganda, we must be able to detect the logical fallacies that undergird it. Identifying logical fallacies and challenging those who purvey them at every opportunity is crucial to developing effective intellectual self-defense. Practice these vital skills every day. Your health, your livelihood, and perhaps even your life may depend on it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my empowered Substack stack so you never miss a post.